electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, shutdown countdown. Congress scrambling for a last-ditch deal to keep the government open. The end of an era. The lights go out on the DVD rental business that changed everything. Netflix co-founder Mark Randolph will join us in a must-see conversation. Nike just did something it has not done in two years, and the stock is moving. Too hot to handle. Apple already facing a big headache over the new iPhone 15. They love gold. What is behind a frenzy for gold bars at Costco? And the hottest ticket around may now be a New York Jets game. And obviously it is all thanks to one Taylor Swift. All that and much more across the hour. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon. As always, out west, I'm Brian Sullivan. First up on Last Call, CNBC's Big Day at our Delivering Alpha conference. Some of the biggest names in business hitting the stage, giving their take on everything from markets to the economy and everything in between. And many, it seemed, took a pretty pessimistic tone when asked about what's ahead. We're going to have a debt crisis in this country. It's a very risky situation. You could see the 10-year approach. Uh, approach five. Jamie, and, and, that could, and that can happen in the very short term, like like literally weeks. The amount of energy that's necessary to to support that, the the demand on the grid is going to be much greater than the supply that we have today. Now, the question of energy supply you just heard comes at a time when oil again hitting its highest level in months. Meantime, as billionaire Bill Ackman notes, the 10-year bond yield creeping closer to 5%, which he thinks could happen in weeks. This, by the way, as the S&P 500 is having a good year and hopefully making you a lot of money. The Nasdaq, by the way, is up about 40% for the Nasdaq 100. That's good. But with all the bearish tones we just heard, not all investors may be feeling the pain. Take Nike. The company posting earnings after the bell today It fell short of Wall Street's revenue expectation for the first time in two years, but beat on earnings and gross margin and said consumer demand for its products is very, very strong. Apparently, they use two varies, and that is setting Nike stock up about 7.5%. All right, so with all this kind of swirling around at the same time, how should you view stocks, the market, going forward, either watch out ahead or a spring ready to be sprung? Let's find out. With us to kick it off is managing partner at Evans May Wealth Management, Elizabeth Evans, and Piper Sandler, managing director and chief market technician, Craig Johnson. Craig, you know, listen, the beginning of the year and, and the last couple of months was, or I should say a year last year was tough. You stayed long and strong. You're going to be proven right. Right now, we're going to kind of feel this like this, like a little bit of a shaky situation. But you still say history is on the bull's side. 
Brian, I absolutely do. And I still think there's more upside to go in this market. As you're right, we started at the beginning of the year looking for 46.25 on the S&P. We got there and we uh, checked and raised that objective up to 48.25. There's so much negativity. There's a lot of negativity with the shutdown that we're going to have later today. But when you go back and you look at history, Brian, you look at the facts, markets really don't sell off going into and they only accelerate coming out of these sort of uh, government shutdown events. That's what history has proven when you look back at the last uh, series of shutdowns back to 1980. If you also go out and look at right now, 10-year bond yields, lots of concern. Everybody's basically uh, looking at 10-year bond yields. Yields are going up. They're shorting bonds at this point in time. But Brian, we're at an extreme we're at an extreme there at this point in time. And I got to tell you, every conversation I have is, well, how high are 10-year bond yields going to go? When I look back at history and I look at charts, I think you're overbought and you're going to see yields now start to come down okay. is what you're going to ultimately start to see, Brian. Well, that, that's good news to a lot of people that are going to have to borrow money, a mortgage, whatever it may be. Elizabeth, yeah. Elizabeth Evans, what's your take on the, on the macro market, September Always kind of a cruel month, October, because of liquidity and a lot of other issues. Things tend to take off. Do you think we're going to see an end-of-year rally in stocks? I do, Brian. I, I agree with Craig. It's, you know, September is always a terrible month in the market, and this year was no exception, down 4.5%, and I think we're down 6 from July. October is historically the most volatile. I think we see the market move lower before it moves higher, but Looking at the end of 2023 into 2024, we think that we've seen the trough in earnings. We think we see much healthier earnings growth ahead, which could provide the next leg in the equity markets. And don't forget, for the first time in decades, cash is paying something. And historically, when you have high cash levels like we do today, that is a bullish sign for equity investors because it represents future buying power. So we're buyers long-term, and I think you can use the volatility to your advantage. Well, I think long-term, yeah, you certainly want to be always invested. Stocks, what, they go up like 75 or 77% of the time going back 100 years. But Elizabeth, I want to go right back to you on that note, because a lot of people will make the case, and by the way, very smartly, that that 5% tax-free yield on government bonds, while not exactly, you know, 5% is not a huge amount of money, especially with inflation at this level, you're not getting that on a real basis would be competition for stocks. You say, no, we got to flip it, and, and maybe it makes us hoard cash for later. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, we've had, a, we've had a, that conversation over and over again this year. Why, why invest money if I can get five and a quarter, five and a half percent on a money market or buy a treasury? The reality is, just as you mentioned, Brian, you never know when the market's going to go up. If you could time it perfectly, uh, we'd all be sitting on a private island somewhere. You need to be invested for the long term and you need to be there because no, you know, no one expected at the beginning of the year that we'd be up 11 plus percent. The, the Nasdaq composite would be up more than 25. And as you noted, the Nasdaq 100 has just been unbelievable. So that's that's why mm -hmm. you need to look for companies that uh, we think, you know, today have earnings, are generating strong free cash flow and are trading at a reasonable multiple. Those are the companies you want to be in for the long term. Yeah, You know, Craig, the one thing I love about you and your team is you put together this this giant. It's an actual book, chart book with all kinds of charts and stocks. I mean, it reminds me of the Sears catalog in 1971. And I say that as an extreme compliment, my man. Any parts of the market or any specific stocks that you think are just looking really, really good right now? 
Well, Brian, what we're seeing with our relative strength work is we continue to believe that we need to be overweight industrials. They still look really constructive. I'd point out Parker Hannifin. I'd also point out uh, Watsko and also train triple, uh, double T. I'd also point out in terms of uh, the technology sector, still like what I see there, just not the Magnificent Seven. Those stocks are going to take a break. They're overdone. Those are the generals in the market that are just sort of being taken out and shot. I'd rather go down cap. I'd rather own things such as uh, uh, Anet. Uh, I'd rather own Intuit. I'd rather own Fresh Freshworks, FRSH, and uh, ON. O-N-T-O, as some of the other names, Brian, they look a lot more constructive. And then also in the services side of the market, uh, I'd point out Marsh McClellan, and I'd be buying Workday on this uh, pullback that we've seen here today. But those are the constructive areas where I think we want to be. And Brian, if you look at what's happening with these large cap stocks, mid cap is where you want to be coming into year end. If we're going to get the year end uh, rally that Elizabeth is talking about here, it's going to be, I think, led by these mid caps, not by small, uh, not by the large magnificent seven stocks. And at this point in time, I don't think anybody's positioned for a move like that, Brian. Uh, can we just do it right? Can we just agree the three of us and whoever else may be watching or listening? We're just going to coin this as the Craig Johnson, Jan Brady market. <laughs> I mean, or sure. Peter, I, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be too specific. Craig and Elizabeth Evans, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All thank right. Thank you. Mid-caps, the Jan Brady. It's always Marshall. Marsh. Anyway, speaking of stocks, we moved a little higher today. Some good news, even, the, even as the S&P 500 on pace to have its worst month of the year. And, and by the way, it's basically flat. So that tells you what kind of a good year it has been. Now, inside the action, your stud and dud du jour. Shares of navigation products maker Trimble jumping 6.5%. Comes after the company announced it would buy an 85% stake in Trimble's agricultural business. But then there's this. CarMax crushed today down 13%. A lot of concern about the used car market, interest rates, and probably some combination thereof. Ouch. All right, meantime, our engine just getting fired up. And coming up, it's not looking good. But can Congress still pull out a last-second deal to keep the government open? We'll speak with the lawmaker in the thick of it. Plus is the end of an era at Netflix. Ones that changed everything. What that is, ahead with Mark Randolph, who co-founded Netflix. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome back. It is time for tomorrow's news tonight. Right now, Congress scrambling to keep the government running. A federal government shutdown will occur this Sunday unless Congress can pass spending legislation. If they don't, 
Millions of federal employees may not get paychecks after a few weeks, and Americans could start seeing delays in things like federal aid. The Senate has proposed a stopgap measure to extend the deadline, but House leadership not on board. Here's House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Squawk Box. Will I accept and surrender to what Senate decides? The answer is no. We're our own bodies. Can the House and the Senate pull things together in time to avoid a government shutdown? Joining us now is Republican Congresswoman Maria Alvaro Salazar. Congresswoman Salazar, thank you very much for joining us. Um, it is very confusing, I think, for the average American and average voter out there to understand yeah. what's going on. Your side says that we got to cut spending. The Democrats and President Biden will come out and say, well, they're trying to gut Medicare and, and throw grandma out of the hospital. I don't even know what to believe. What's the actual situation that's happening right now? What's the fight over? And I agree with you, and thank you for the opportunity. I agree with you that the average American doesn't understand, but the average American doesn't want to shut the government down. Let's start with that. Neither do we in the Republican Party. No American wants that. So the problem that we have is that Washington, the federal government, has an addiction, and that addiction is called spending. We agree with that, right? $6 billion a day we spend and we have to borrow because we don't produce it. If we are telling the average American family, my children, I tell my two kids, you cannot spend more than we earn or the budget that I give you, why the federal government can do that? So those are facts. What's happening within the Republican conference is that you have some folks who are saying, we got to cut more. And we agree with that. It's just the method that we are going to cut those funds is me, what we're debating. The, 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 debate, right. Sorry, the to, debate, Congresswoman, on the other side or the, com the comments on the other side, especially like from the president looking at his Twitter feed, whatever, is basically that the Republicans want to cut Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security and that it's going to be a, a no. catastrophe. Is there a way? Let me ask That's you this. That's a lie. Medicare. It's okay, a lie. We'll get to that in just a second. Medicare and Medicaid spending no. has more than doubled, even adjusted for inflation and per capita. Is there a way to cut some of these programs without, without, and this is key, reducing the quality and access of health care? Yeah, but you are talking to me about Medicare and Social Security and Medicaid, and that is not what we're discussing right now. That's what you call mandatory spending. That's 66 percent of the federal budget. We're talking about less than we're talking about around 11 percent of the federal budget, a tiny little minute part of it. So we are not talking right now discussing anything that has to do with Medicare, Medicaid or Social Security. So if the White House is saying that it's an inaccurate information. So now let's go back to what we're discussing. We're discussing many issues and we need to fund the government. That is what you call discretionary. And that's why we have been working diligently the last three nights. We're going to be voting until midnight, one o'clock tonight. So we have so far discussed how to fund 75 percent of those funds that have nothing to do with mandatory spending. And we, everything indicates that we are working diligently not to shut the government down. The president will say that there's a small but extreme group of Republicans in the House which want to, pretty much no matter what happens, want to shut down the government. Is that true? What that group of folks want to do is send the message to the American people that we in Washington and the federal government has what I called, what I just told you at the beginning, an addiction. 
which is to spend more than we make. And we cannot do that anymore. We need to find ways to lower that and have a balanced budget. I think we all agree with that. It's just the method. How are you going to do it? It's like when you need to go on a diet because you're 100 pounds overweight. How are you going to do that? You're going to go, you're going to starve your death, uh, your, yourself for a, year, for a year, for a month, or for a week. That is the method, which I agree that we need to do it slowly so we don't kill anybody. But the other folks are saying, I don't know, we got to do it faster. It's just a matter of a method. Is not the, but the outcome, we all agree, we got to spend less. But if I was a political strategist on the other side of that metaphor, Congresswoman, you know what I would say? Oh, look, this party what? is trying to take food out of the baby's mouth. How do you counter that? I'm sure they How could do you say, counter that? Listen, they could say whatever thing they want to. What's the empirical evidence? Empirical evidence is that we're spending $6 billion a day more than we have. We have a $33 trillion debt, $33 trillion, that we are spending an immense amount of money on paying and servicing that debt, money that we could invest in infrastructure Mm -hmm. or to help the poor. So we do have a big problem, financial problem, right? We know that. Republicans and Democrats agree with that. So we know that there are sacred areas like Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, but there yeah. are other areas that we can definitely we can definitely reduce. And that's what we're doing right yeah. now, trying to we're- pass legislation, appropriation bills, so we do not shut the government down. But we agree we'll that s- we have a problem with the economy, that we have inflation, and we don't want to have inflation. No, well, no, but we do. We do. It's coming. To, the rate is coming down, but inflation still exists. Congresswoman Maria Salazar, Really appreciate it, folks. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. And by the way, folks, you you hear deficits are coming down. Just so you know, they are not. Deficits are indeed going up, not down. All right. Still ahead. That's a wrap. Netflix closing down the business that started it all. And co-founder Mark Randolph will be here to tell you how they did it. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. It's really not that often that a true, true era comes to an end, but tomorrow we have one. Netflix's DVD rental business, no more. That started back in 1997 when Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph founded the company in California. Here's Netflix's original company logo. Arguably, much better now. All right, well, less than a year after being founded, about a dozen employees are working out of a pretty kind of rundown old bank building with an arguably ugly green carpet. The pitch to consumers was simple and epitomized in this 2004 commercial. Go to Netflix.com, make a list of the movies you want to see, and in about one business day, you'll get three DVDs. Keep them as long as you want, without late fees. Then when you're done, look, prepaid envelopes. Return one, and they'll send you another movie from your list. 
it's easy. Mark Randolph took the reins of the company's first CEO, so it's fitting that he is the holder of Netflix's order number one. Here's a picture of it. And what did he order? That's it. He ordered Martin Scorsese's Casino. The DVD shipped to Randolph in March of 1998, about a month before Netflix's original DVD launch, basically a test run. So do you care to guess what the first DVD, the first customer DVD mailed out to the public was? Well, we're going to have an answer for you in just a bit. But as the Netflix DVD era obit is written, here are the most rented films in Netflix history. Number five, The Bucket List. Number four, The Departed, great movie. Number three, The Hurt Locker. Number two, and this is disturbing, the psychosexual car wreck thriller Crash. And number one, maybe also a surprise, The Blind Side. All told, an astounding 2.4 or 5.2 billion DVDs were shipped. Those little red envelopes had a big impact on the entertainment and retail industry. Just think about old blockbuster video. And now, by the way, we're streaming maybe all of Hollywood. Tomorrow, the six remaining workers at Netflix's last distribution center in Anaheim, California, will ship out the final DVD orders. Customers don't even have to return them, so maybe order a lot. All this revolutionary service takes its final bow, and there's only one man we want to speak with tonight, and that is the aforementioned Mark Randolph, also the author of the book, That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea, also the host of the That Will Never Work podcast. And Mark, it's great to have you on Last Call, and I'm, I'm just guessing that based on your book and the podcast, some people probably said to you, that will never work. Why did it? Well, listen, before I even answer that, Brian, you got you reminded me, I've really got to find that casino disc and mail it back. But just thank goodness they eliminated. Well, you're going to mail it to yourself. <laughs> That's right. Oh, no, I get to keep it, I guess. That's right. <laughs> no, it's, it is funny because, you know, when, when we first pitched that idea, this crazy idea of DVD rental by mail, Everyone said that'll never work. I mean, our investors said that'll never work. Our, our employees said that'll never work. And I, even when I pitched the idea to my wife, she thought it was the stupidest idea she'd ever heard. But for some reason, uh, that crazy idea actually resonated with people. And but you weren't, but Mark, and we, you know, you weren't, first off, I, I was doing a little research on you. We've never met in person. The fact that you're the great grand nephew of Sigmund Freud, I find very cool and awesome, but that's for probably a different interview. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, you, you and Reed Hastings had made it. You were probably financially set after your company was sold to rational software. So you, you could have a little bit of fun with it. But what was it about this business, which was kind of odd at the time, that was like, OK, this will be our next venture? Whenever you're at... We- I'll be honest, it is not because Reed and I were movie buffs. I mean, we both had little kids, so I think we spent most of our time watching Lion King. And we certainly weren't arguing about who the best French cinematographer was. We were just looking for an interesting problem. And DVD rental was just one of dozens of movies that I pitched to Reed. I mean, I pitched him things like personalized shampoo. I pitched him, pitched him custom sporting goods. I pitched him vitamin ideas. And one of the crazy ideas I pitched was video rental by mail. And for some reason, that intrigued us. And it cemented itself as an idea that just might work one day when we decided to test the concept and we mailed a used music CD to Reed's house to see if it actually was possible to send a disc through the mail. 
And surprisingly enough, it got to his house in less than 24 hours for the price of a first-class stamp. And I think based on that crazy experiment, both of us kind of looked at each other and said, this just might work. Because I, I, yeah, I'd love to know what that, what that CD was, by the way, Mark. Um, he, <laughs> I would imagine that this was, once you bought the movie, I, I don't, I'd love, do you remember what it would cost you? In other words, if you want, because you did all this data analysis too, right? Because you guys are software guys. And I guess you figured out, we need to have, 100,000 copies of The Departed, but like five copies of Crash. Well, if you did, that would have been wrong. But you get my point. You had to figure out what to buy. When did a DVD become profitable? Like after what rental would it just become just pure cash flow? Well, you're right. In fact, that was the entire challenge of running a rental business was turns. A disc back then, what made this possible is that DVDs cost 15 to $20. And so if you could just turn it, 15 to 20 times, you had your price down to a dollar a turn, which would work when you, at first, were charging about three or four dollars per rental. That got even trickier when after about 18 months, we shifted to that all-you-can-eat subscription model. But it was always about, you've got to deliver something that people want. You've got to buy enough copies. They're satisfied, but not too many copies. You can't get sufficient turns out of them. Uh, and it turns out just one of the geeky things you have to master if you're going to be in the uh, in the rental business. And then you got I know you left the company a while back, but at some point, when, when did the conversation really begin about going from this to the early days of streaming? In other words, the first time somebody mentioned a word like that to when you could actually watch something on Netflix, non DVD, what was the time lag? Oh, the time lag, time, time lag was probably 40 or 50 seconds. I mean, we, we, we said a moment ago that basically everyone said that will never work, and they had two different reasons they all thought it would never work. I mean, number one, of course, was Blockbuster. There's one in every corner. Why on earth would anybody want to rent it by mail and you could drive to a Blockbuster? But the other reason was, hey, it's a digital media just a matter of time before people are downloading them or streaming them. And Reed and I knew this was absolutely right. It was inevitable that eventually it would be delivered digitally. Where we disagreed was how long that would take. I mean, there was no bandwidth to the home that could handle it then. And there was the matter of uh, Hollywood was terrified of having their content stolen, of being Napster. Mm -hmm. And we bet this is probably a good five or six years but we were off by order of magnitude of two. I mean, it took nine years before Netflix finally streamed its first content. Wow. But it was designed nine, into the nine business years. from day one. Day one design, nine years. You know, the, one, the thing I thought, because I was one of your early customers, probably like a lot of our viewers, you know, early adopters, had a little extra money at the time, I guess, to throw around. And I thought the genius of what you guys did was when you'd log in and you ranked your DVDs. So it wasn't like you're like, I want The Departed. You would rank, okay, if you don't have The Departed, I'll take Mystic River or whatever it might be. I don't know why I'm on these Boston mob dramas, but you get my point, was the, the ranking system I thought was fantastic. Because then when, it was almost like an element of surprise in the mailbox. Like, what am I going to, oh, Netflix, oh, I got The Departed, right? It was kind of almost like an endorphin rush in a weird way. <laughs> or maybe my life was just that boring. It was no, it was a critical component of what made this business work economically. Because, of course, on day one of a new release coming out, everybody wants it. But you can't possibly buy enough copies to satisfy that demand. So eventually, if you can get it to say, 
I don't need that disc first. I'll take it eventually. You had made a bid business win. But the key to doing that, to saying, mm -hmm. I'm happy with whatever you ship me, was being able to make sure you could recommend good movies to people, that the movies they put on their list they actually wanted. Um, it's one of those things which seems simple on the surface, but is quite complicated uh, under the covers. But I got to admit, you're not paying retail for those DVDs. Like, you're not going and buying a $15 DVD. Where I mean, you, you must have gotten massive bulk discounts. Uh, maybe later, but on day one, we were actually going out and buying them from stores. A lot of the times, the studios you literally didn't went. Want to wait sell a minute, them. hold on, hold on. This is you literally went out with a shopping cart to like Walmart and bought a bunch of DVDs. And eventually, Walmart said they uh, wouldn't sell it. Let us clean out their entire bin. So eventually, we had to use eight, 10, 12 different people, each going in and buying three or four copies each to get what we needed. So absolutely, hey. So you were the reason no you, one in like Santa Cruz could find an actual copy of The Departed. <laughs> well, I apologize to them right now, but absolutely, it, 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 one of our goals on day one, the target was I wanna have a single copy at least of every single DVD that's available at the time, which was about 900 different movies. And wow, we did that. And that, believe me, that was not by placing a bulk order with a distributor. That was beating the bushes, trying to find stores which had them and paying whatever you had to pay to get it. All right. So at the beginning of the interview, and I don't know if you know the answer to this or not, but we'll, let's play the game, Mark, as well. We asked our viewers if they could guess or maybe knew what the first ever DVD shipped out by you guys to a customer was. Do you know? I do know, Brian. Why don't you should reveal I, it then? I, you do. You reveal it. <laughs> the answer is Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. I won't say it three times for the reasons you probably know, but yes, Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Michael Keaton for the win. Hey, you want a Zagnut? Like that? Like I can't. You know, I was trying to think because they, were, my team was asking me, and I didn't. I had no idea. I thought Casino because that was you, but that was you sending it to yourself as a test. Correct. This was the first customer who got one, I, I'd love to know who that customer was, by the way, that was the first one to get a DVD by mail, and it was Beetlejuice. That's right. Uh, day one, you know, we my whole first month forecast is about 100 orders, and we did 136 orders on day one, which was, to me, astounding. You see, um, 100 that, for the month was your estimate, and you did 136 it, in the first day? Yeah, it was a pretty, a pretty uh, tumultuous first day. You know, this was... Back in 1998, yeah. and so back then you did not use Shopify, you did not have Amazon Web Services, you had to build everything yourself. And yeah. we were all huddled in my office waiting for this first order to come in, and it came in and we all cheered, and then a few more orders, we cheered some more, and then it was quiet for a while, because less than 15 minutes in, we had crashed all of our servers. And so most of that first day was limping things along, yeah. trying to stay up long enough. But 137... 136, not bad. And here, not bad at all. And look, you changed everything, really changed the entire business. And, and if you find this out, Mark, we'll let you go. If there's some way to find out, I'd love to know what the last DVD order, like the final one that goes out of Anaheim, California. And if it's Beetlejuice, I'm probably going to just retire. <laughs> Mark Randolph, thank you very much. Great conversation. Thanks. My, my pleasure, Brian. If it's Crash, that's also kind of creepy. All right, still, if you know the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Still ahead. Feeling the heat, literally, complaints growing from some new iPhone 15 owners and whether Apple can solve them.
welcome back. Apple apparently has the hottest smartphone on the market. Literally. Some iPhone 15 Pro owners have been complaining that the phone is getting hot, like really hot, while using some apps or charging, even getting so hot at times that it's difficult to touch. Joining us now to talk more about this is Wall Street Journal personal tech columnist Joanna Stern, also a CNBC contributor. And Joanna, okay, so we know how the internet works. Here's how social media and the internet now work. One or two people will have an issue. They put something about it. Next thing you know, there's some article that millions of iPhone users are having problems, you know, with overheating. But it was actually like one guy who left it out in the sun. Or is this a real thing? I think it's somewhere in the middle, but it really is too early to tell. It is definitely affecting some people. I have written this article, and even after my first review, I pointed this out in my own testing. Before all this all happened, I said, these phones do get warm, especially when charging. I noticed that on the iPhone 14 Pros as well. And, And I should be clear here, this seems to be only on the Pros, the 15 Pro and the 15 Pro Max, which are, yes, the ones with the new titanium design. And so there is definitely a group of people who have said, yes, this is getting warm. Some have said too hot. But then there is, I don't know how percentages, but a many, many people could be the majority of people who are not having a problem at all. The other thing, too, and there's some articles about this, by the way. The other thing, though, there's two ways. Okay, number one, if the phone gets so hot, we know everyone knows this. It will shut itself down. You get the little thermostat thing. It's like basically wait for your phone to cool off. But, but hotter phones that are still running can also be an excess and quick battery drain, I believe. So if this is an issue and you drop a grand on a phone, okay, maybe you're annoyed it's getting hot. But if that battery starts to go down quick, that's a whole different issue. And Apple may have a real problem on its hands. And and it isn't even just when you're using the phone and it's warm. Over time, that heat will degrade the battery and the battery health will degrade quicker. So that phone won't last as long, right? You'll start noticing the battery life draining. You'll start noticing, oh, wow, this phone doesn't last as long as when I first bought it. And heat can absolutely affect that. Yeah, and there's a difference between a warm phone. My phone has gotten warm and, you know, if it's on the car dashboard or even if it's charging to your point, and then there's hot. And from what I've read, there's actually people who have said, and everybody has different tolerance levels, and maybe there's, you know, you're not using a case. Some people are saying their phone has gotten so hot, it actually hurt or was uncomfortable to hold it. Again, if that's true, is there any possibility that Apple could have to issue a recall? Because that would be something. It, it does seem like some are saying this is extremely hot and saying it's hot to the touch. I will say that in my testing, it gets warm. It's uncomfortable to hold, but I'm not going to burn myself. And I don't think we're at the recall of the hardware here. I think what is more likely or could be what Apple could consider here is a software update, which really would tamp down on the performance and the processor. That's what's really what's happening here. The processor is getting really warm. In fact, when I do these tests, It's in and I do the temperature readings on the phone. It's close in the processor area where the processor is versus the battery. And so what they could do is do some things in the software side of things to bring down that processor intensive, bring down the performance and, of course, then bring down the heat. Joanna Stern with the iPhone that she's felt herself. And you do wonder if they have to if people start returning these. I think Apple's got a bigger story than just it's getting annoyingly hot. Joanna, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, coming up, a real-life gold rush at Costco? What's behind the frenzy with Mr. Guy Adami? Next. 
All right, time for a random but interesting. And today's RBI is truly the gold standard. And it appears that not just New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez feels good about gold bars these days because Costco is now selling genuine gold bars online. And apparently they're flying off the virtual shelf. Here they are. Now, to be clear, they're, they're very small. They're about one ounce, just about an inch and a half in length. And again, only available online. But demand for them is so strong, it's even led Costco to limit purchases to two per membership. And Costco's CFO dropped the mention of the gold on their recent earnings call. People have seen online um, that we've been selling gold, one ounce gold bars. Uh, yes, but when we load them on the site, they're typically gone within a few hours. But gold has barely budged in price this year. It's basically flat and it's actually down if you factor in inflation. So why are so many Americans all of a sudden so bullish on gold? Joining us now, the gold standard for financial commentary, CNBC <laughs> fast money trader who apparently can't join us by TV because he must be in a Costco guy. They're only available online so you can leave the Morristown Costco wherever you are. Uh, why, do, why is there so much demand for these gold, these little tiny gold bars? Well, it's fascinating. First of all, thank you. Second of all, I'm sorry I'm not with you on the live television. And third, I heard you said something about uncomfortably hot, which is an expression people use to describe you, Brian Sullivan, uncomfortably hot. And the answer to that question is, Listen, if you think about what's going on in the world, it's not just moms and pops and people watching the Mike Pello guy and buying things on the line. Central bank gold buying is off the charts. Last year was a record amount. $70 billion worth of gold was purchased by central banks. And this year, we're off to a better start than last year, led by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. So central banks seem to be hedging their own ineptitude. And the guys and gals on the streets are saying, wait a second, with the fiscal policies in this country and the monetary policies in this country, I have nowhere else to turn but gold. And you correctly said the price hasn't moved. You're right. The price obviously has been depressing lately because the strength of the dollar and because interest rates have been going higher. Neither one are bullish for gold. But I'm here to tell you, Brian okay. Sullivan, it's just a matter of time before gold gets back on its horse. Oh, come, why is gold, everybody, people love gold. They've loved it since the dawn of time. I don't understand it. Why are you so bullish on gold, Guy Adami? Store of value, and in times of currency crises, and, you know, Ray Dalio was in the network earlier today. I think he was talking to Sarah, you know, talking about potential for a credit crisis. And I will tell you that if either one of those things manifest themselves, People will flock to gold. Right now, the hedge fund community is not in. They will all get in at the same time, and will be at much higher prices than this. So I think it's just, I think there's an inevitability this time. And no, I don't have the tinfoil on my head. And yes, I traded gold for 15 years. But no, that doesn't necessarily make me and wrong. And they're 1900 bucks, by the way. Quickly, guy, guess what? If you buy it online at Costco, you're actually going to spend a little more per ounce than you can buy the gold futures for. But you'd rather have that physical gold bar in your possession, in, your, in those big hands of yours, than a stuffed, futures contract. Stuffed in your closet with $480,000 in cash. <laughs> I know nothing of what you speak. Well, it's the proper amount of money to save in vacation. Uh, you know, emergencies, 1000 2000 $480,000. Well, Guy Dami, love you, love man. Love you, man. Thank you. Bye. All right.
That's the uh, <clears throat> New Jersey Senator joke. All right, from America's new gold rush to an inspiring wealth resurgence. During the Great Recession, Latinos lost up to two-thirds of their median household wealth. Now, 15 years later, wealth improving tremendously for the community. Contessa Brewers live in Miami with more on the latest Hispanic wealth report. Brian, at Latitude, there is consistent focus on highlighting the contributions of Latino Americans and offering opportunity for continued growth. So after the great financial recession, they set an ambitious goal, tripling Hispanic household wealth in 10 years. The progress? Household wealth more than doubled from 2013 to 2019, driven by increasing rates of home ownership, by education, and by entrepreneurship. Latinos start businesses at twice the rate of their non-Hispanic white counterparts, but usually they're funded by investments from friends and family. Access to the capital needed to grow and scale their business is a real challenge. Take fashion designer Willy Chavarria. He grew up in a tiny town in an agricultural community in Central California, got a design degree, and worked for some big fashion brands like Ralph Lauren and Calvin Klein. His own line has exploded on the fashion scene. He's closed New York Fashion Week two years in a row. And just last week, he launched Big Willie, a fashion line aimed at the mass market, starting with Sun, And it sold out since last week. He is ready to scale his business. It's very interesting because we have all of these people like me who are entrepreneurs and we're doing amazing things and we're creative and we're talented and you know like myself I can build this incredible team but what it comes down to is capital and in order to build an infrastructure in order to be in order to absorb what we have coming at us which is a demand we need investment. We need infrastructure within our own companies. At a session with the head of content for Vogue Mexico and Latin America, Willie highlighted the potential return on investment in a business like his. Mass market retailers like PacSun bringing in designers who really appeal to the customers. Latinos account for 34% of apparel spending and they're getting young, they are young. They're get, just now getting to the age, Brian, where education, entrepreneurship, savings and investment, and home ownership build wealth. That increased buying power profits the investor, the retailer, the designer, and of course, the overall economy. And on the note of fashion, Brian, may I say on behalf of the viewers everywhere, nice tie. What is your beef with this tie? Why does everybody have a straw? I'm getting emails and texts. You text. I, what are the viewers? Let's put it to the viewers. I like this tie. What's wrong with it? No, no, no. It's great for Christmas time. I would have saved it for another four months. Well, you know what? In my mind, it's Frankenmuth, Michigan every day. Bronner's all year Christmas. Contessa, we'll do the show from there. Contessa Brewer. Look at that latitude, la attitude that Contessa has. All right. I love this tie. <laughs> all right. Coming up. Two things you almost never hear together, except for the first week of the season. Hot ticket and the New York Jets. But that's where one Taylor Swift comes in. But we'll be waiting all Sunday for Sunday night. That is when the hated Kansas City Chiefs come to New Jersey to play the Jets. By the way, tune in to NBC or Peacock to see, you know, Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, and 
and maybe Travis Kelsey's rumored girlfriend, Taylor Swift. According to front office sports, the pop star plans to attend the game at MetLife Stadium. Now, it all comes a week after she saw the Chiefs beat the Bears at Arrowhead. She went nuts when Kelsey caught a TD pass. And even with just the rumor of a Swift sighting, people are paying up to see the Jets. Last night, the cheapest ticket on Vivid Seats, I mean, an absolutely terrible ticket, was 61 bucks. It's now 94 Still not a bad price, but a 50% increase just over a rumor that Taylor Swift may be at the game. Probably not in that $94 seat. For more, let's bring in Michael McCarthy, senior writer for Front Office Sports, who broke the news that she was coming to NJ. What are your sources on this story? No, you don't have to tell me. But, I mean, are people really willing to pay up just to maybe get a sighting of her behind glass in some luxury box? Absolutely. I mean, these Swifties are like a mini economy in of themselves. Uh, you know, we're seeing that prices are doubling uh, in some cases on the resale market. And also, Brian, think about the effect this is going to have in ratings. Uh, NBC Sports had a lopsided game, and now it's turned into must-see TV. Last Sunday's game on Fox drew 25 million viewers and was the single most-watched NFL game of the weekend. Have we confirmed? I mean, they walked out. They were holding hands. But, you know, the tinfoil hat crowd online is like, this is all just a marketing gimmick and Kelsey's doing COVID vaccine commercial. Like, there's this whole thing. Is this a real relationship? Do we know? We don't know yet. I mean, there's a lot of uh, evidence that's kind of coming out that it is a real relationship. I mean, the thing about Taylor, uh, she's always been a pretty private person. She doesn't have a 15-year history of dating professional athletes like the Kardashians. So, you know, this does feel real uh, from everything we hear that they're taking it slow. You know, they've tried to get together. He's tried to get together with her. Uh, they partied together last weekend. So it looks good. Well, it's looking good for the Jets because I think, you know, listen, Aaron Rodgers, I mean, his Jets season and maybe career lasted a minute, which is just the most Jets thing ever. This, this could be the biggest moment of the Jets, except for Rodgers running out in the field with the flag at the beginning of the season or bigger. And Brian, guess who, guess who is going to be at the game also? We're hearing that Aaron Rodgers might be at the game, making his first appearance since his Achilles heel injury to rally the troops. So that'll uh, add another little wrinkle to Sunday night's telecast. Or to steal Swift from Kelsey. You never know. <laughs> Could happen. Michael McCarthy, front office sports. Great scoop, by the way. You Jets owe you a royalty. Michael, thank, thank you. Thank you. And I love the tie, Brian. See, I knew you were a man of class and distinction. All right, a major milestone for Elon Musk. 15 years ago, SpaceX's Falcon 1 became the first privately developed liquid fuel rocket to orbit the Earth. Since then, the rocket company has completed a total of 267 launches. SpaceX's valuation, by the way, has also skyrocketed since that Falcon 1 launch. According to documents obtained by this company, CNBC, it's valued at $150 billion. Bucks. All right, folks. That is it for this last call. Happy Friday. It's my Friday because I'm off tomorrow, but Eamon's hosting from D.C., and he's got former VP and GOP candidate Mike Pence. Can't miss that. See you tomorrow. I'll see you Monday. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.